A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We love today's guest. We want to <laughs> bottle her up and put her in her pocket and keep her with us always. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. Forever and ever. Annie is an artist and a writer working to normalize diverse relationship styles and varied sexual experiences. She is a queer, kinky relationship anarchist on a mission to incite individuals to experience personal revolutions. Annie began writing about her experiences when she started dabbling in kink in 2019. Just before the pandemic, she found herself getting into non-monogamy, and this came with an explosion of introspection. Thus, her Instagram account was born, and that, if for those of you listening, is Annie underscore undone, and we'll put it in the show notes. Annie has explored a variety of relationship styles and is currently continuing her journey of self-discovery. She has a wide experiential knowledge in non-monogamy kink and exploring healthy relationship dynamics. I feel like she's one of those treasures that you find on social media that you're just like, everything she says is just so mind-blowingly brilliant and like grounding in like the expansion of relationships and the way we relate. And she's just challenging us in some really beautiful ways, I think. Yeah. I mean, I would say buckle up. For those listening, because we are about to, I mean, listen, you're not going to be that surprised. I think Danae and I are constantly challenging some of this shit, but she's our people. (laughs) I know, but I would say buckle up because I think that part of what we brought her on was to go deeper in that conversation, Mm -hmm. right? That you and I are constantly having, having, and to say like, how do we push the boundaries around this deconstruction of what we've always looked at as like the ideal for relationships and codependency and the shoulds and the monogamy and all of the things, right? The heteronormativity. So she embodies so much of it. She talks about all of it. She pushes boundaries without shaming. I think Mm -hmm. she's so beautiful at like normalizing and turning the dial to like curiosity 
you know, when you find yourself judging. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we often say at the start of our retreats and just in conversations in general, when there's something that could conceivably be activating, can you stay in the space of curiosity before rejecting it, right? Mm -hmm. Before sort of like tuning out, this isn't worthwhile. Like, can I be in the space of like, I wonder why that feels so activating to me. If it doesn't feel true for me, I wonder why it feels difficult to tolerate those type of questions, you know? Yeah, I love it. Um, And then we actually loved her so much that we brought her back for a part two. So definitely listen to all of this one, keep your pen and paper out. And then the next week, bring it back out because she'll be back again. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. We're very excited today. I know we say that all the time, but today we're really excited. (laughs) Um, So we have Annie here. And Annie, I have to tell you, so you came to me by way, your content came to me by way of another therapist friend of me and Danae's um, who works primarily with a lot of attachment stuff and attachment theory. And so she sent me your work We'll get into it, but my, my partner and I are kind of in the stages of, you know, relational anarchy and some deconstruction. And she was like, I think you really like her. And then I sent her to Danae and I was like, I think you'll really like her. <laughs> I was like, let's get her on the pod. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on and have this conversation with us because yeah. I think it's going to be really helpful and enlightening for a lot of our listeners. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So usually we kind of start out, right? We've got so many questions and so many things we want to cover, but we do usually start out with our guests just kind of asking like to give us an idea of your trajectory, right? Like how did you get to be who you are, where you're at, the work you're doing? Like what did that look like? How did you come to be the Annie Annie Undone that we know? Should I go? Um, So (laughs) I was monogamously, I was married for 16 years. Um, and then kind of we started getting curious. I, I came to polyamory by way of BDSM, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily uncommon, right? People in kink are, tend to be a little more open. And so we were talking very openly about fantasies. And so it was around 2020 that we decided to kind of explore opening a marriage. We kind of got like curious because we had a couple of friends who were like, oh my God, we're swinging. And like, this is a thing. And we were like, wait, that's an option? Um, so my husband at the time and I decided that we were going to open, I very quickly was like, I think I'm polyamorous. I think this is how I'm oriented. And he was like, I'm interested in having novel sex experiences. So right away we diverged in our, in our goals. Um, I kind of started getting curious on Reddit and kind of like, what's going on? What is this BDSM thing? What is this polyamory stuff? And that was kind of where the Annie Undone name kind of started. And then as we were getting more into the non-monogamous space, but especially as we started getting into a polyamorous space, I started the Instagram because I was, I've been a working writer for 15 years, but I was like, I'm, I'm having an experience and I, I need, I need to let this out somehow. Mm -hmm. And so I started just discussing what was happening for me. Um, and people very quickly started resonating with the experience that I was having. And, you know, of course, when a lot of us open up in this way. We're doing a lot of reading. And that, of course, led me to attachment theory. Um, And I like to say, like as a synopsized version, that I've been in every relationship style there is to be in, right? I've been monogamous. I've been a swinger. I was non-monogamous. I was polyamorous. And after my relationship with my ex-husband dissolved, uh, which it eventually did, um, 
I started looking at relationship anarchy and really looking at what makes this sustainable for me and how do I want to practice when the decision is just mine. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that this is one of the largest, I guess, things that couples face, right? Is that we're not just thinking about ourselves. We're also thinking about our partners and there's something that undermines our autonomy when we're just considering how do we keep this couple together. Mm -hmm. And so in the absence of that, I was actually able to say to myself, where do I want to be in this? And how do I want to participate in relationships? Full stop. Hmm. Love it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think the thing of like, that really perked up as you just said, you know, when the decision is just mine, because I think there's something that comes up and is so prevalent with couples that is like, I can really watch the way that we like withhold our truth in relationships mm-hmm. to keep the other person and to maintain the attachment and like make sure this person is good. I call it intimacy without intimacy. Like there's all mm-hmm. these things that we can't say to this person. And yet this is apparent, like supposedly like the closest person in the world to me. Um, and I feel like I'm sure the pushback that you often get around like this thing of um, the decision just being mine or like, I love the way that you will say like you deserve to be yourself is that that's selfish, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I'd love to hear you like say a little bit more about like what that brings up when you hear that response or like, you know, the pushback to that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that in my experience, whenever we try to create boundaries, we get a lot of pushback from people who don't want to respect those, right? Mm. Um, And there's a lot of confusion, of course, and I think this will probably remain a staple of this kind of work forever. What is a rule? What is an agreement? And what is a boundary, Mm. right? Um, But if you're valuing yourself in this is part of why I've been talking a lot about decentralizing romance, right? Mm-hmm. Because we get into this way where we're we're in these romantic relationships and they have so much power. And the problem with being coupled is that we wind up giving our autonomy away a little bit at a time to the point that we don't even notice that we've done it, right? So you get 16, 17 years down the road and you can't remember the last time you made a decision for yourself or what you wanted to have for dinner or even what you want to wear. You know, Mm -hmm. like you start giving away pieces of yourself. Like I still to this day, I identify as non-binary, but I think in my head, if I've worn a mask outfit four days in a row, is somebody judging me because I don't look pretty mm-hmm. enough, right? Like we show up for romantic love in ways we haven't necessarily agreed to. So is it selfish or is it centralizing yourself? I felt like you were going to say something, B. No. no just <laughs> muting my microphone so I could clear my throat for those who can't <laughs> see what's going on. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Danae and I talk a lot about, I mean, this is codependency, the deconstruction of codependency, moving more toward interdependence and relationships. I mean, this is like what Danae and I specialize on, what we, you know, focus in, what we're talking about in all of our retreats, all of our content. So it, it's really a breath of fresh air to hear somebody like you talk about this idea of like decentering romantic relationships. And you touched on it a little bit, but can you speak more to that? Because I do think that there is some, 
I get a lot of questions around that concept, right? Like I've talked a little bit about this with people and I, and it's kind of like, what does that mean? Like, how do I still have a partnership and also not have it be center? Or how do I have a working partnership and not consider the other person, right? Like, and, and I can answer these questions, but I, I want you to answer it. Cause I think these are a lot of the questions that understandably where we're at in the trajectory of human beings and relationships people are having, right? Yeah. And it's very, very triggering for people because they feel yes. like something is being taken away. Right. Yes. But when you look at like the definition of decentralizing, like it's about power and we're fed a very, very strong cultural narrative that romantic love is the center of our universe. If you find this, then you can live your life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what's interesting is that we buy into this without ever considering if it works for us, what that looks like for me or what that looked like for me was being nearly 20 years deep on a relationship and not having minded the store of my own emotional health and my education and the things that would have put me in a seat of power and autonomy. So the goal is not to have love, romantic love, be the center of the thing that you're revolving around. It's to have you be the center and for romantic love to be one very wonderful, very important piece of your life, but not the most important piece. I like to use this, you know, I, I talk about relationship anarchy, which I think is also a very triggering word for people. And anarchy I want to go there. Kind of like <laughs> pings people, right? But it, when we talk about relationship anarchy or decentralizing romantic love, we have to look at all love on a single plane, right? Mm -hmm. Friendship, your children, right? Your romantic love, yourself, as all equal on one plane all together. And that's really what decentralizing love in a romantic way is about. It's about seeing all love in kind of the same way so that we're not elevating one above another. They're all important, right? Like I always tell my partner, I, I want to be the most important when it's, in, when it's important, but it's not mm. always the time, right? Like sometimes somebody's mother needs more attention or their friend or their education yes. or their child, right? I mean, it's a very sort of, I guess, socialist way, right? From mm -hmm. each according to their means to each according to their needs. Mm. You know, you said people get really activated because it feels like something's being taken away from them. And what I think is being taken away, and I want to hear what this brings up for you, is this illusion of safety that we've sort mm. of been operating in. That like, if I just follow the path that I've been told is like the right safe path and I do the thing and I get married or whatever it is that then I'll be okay. And this person will love me forever and I will be lovable. Right. Um, right. And yeah. I think what occurred to me, and I had this realization when my 12 year marriage ended was exactly what you said. There were all of these ways that I was able to not really be present with my own development, my own emotional health. Like there were mm -hmm. all these ways that I was able to hide out from doing that work in that relationship because I didn't have to. I didn't have to mm -hmm. be uncomfortable enough to stay with myself and do it. Yeah. And I think there's just something about like, you know, Vanessa and I come from a depth psychology background. So we talk a lot about like the individuation work of us mm. as humans. And I think what I feel like is happening is there's like a collective individuation process happening where we are realizing 
we were sort of using these relationships as pacifiers, as ways to not do all of this work, not like learn how to self-soothe and stay with ourselves. And in order for us to continue to develop as a human race, like we got to stop doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that people confuse like individuation or, or self-actualization, right? As like hyper independence. And it's not mm -hmm. that, right? Like it's also yeah. the ability to be vulnerable. Like mm -hmm. one of the questions I ask myself the most is, is this something I want or is this something I think I should want? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's part of that process. I, I use this example really frequently is my partner had these like three family events over three weeks and he didn't invite me to any of them. Right. And so I called him and I was like, Hey, um, I noticed that you didn't invite me to any of these like family functions over the next three weeks. And I just want to check in because like, it feels deliberate. And he was mm. like, yeah, yeah, it was deliberate. And I was like, Oh, well, <laughs> why? And he was like, well, you know, I felt like it was a lot of emotional management for me. And I didn't want to add your feelings on top of that emotional management because then I thought that that would add to my emotional load. And then he was like, do you, are you like feeling a type of way about this? And I was like, I don't think I am, but I just want to check in that it doesn't mean something that I don't understand, right? Like this is not a statement on our relationship. And he was like, oh my gosh, no, like it's not a statement on our relationship. I just don't want to do the management that those weeks. And I was like, oh, well, actually, you know what? I don't want to go. I don't either. <laughs> so I think, like, like, I don't want to go either. I don't right? either. <laughs> but the message you will get from a mononormative perspective, right? Because mm -hmm. I went to somebody and I was like, he didn't invite me to these things. And that person was like, what does that mean? I want to like show you off to his family, right? Mm -hmm. Which was not the case at all. So I think that when we're talking about like, how are we like, because I didn't really uh, until the end of that conversation think in my head, do I actually want to go to this? Right? Like mm -hmm. I was only thinking about what does this mean in relation to me? Right? Like it took a conversation to get there. So that's kind of part of that individuation process as well is like, what do I actually want? And what, what does this actually mean? And I think mm. that we skip that sometimes because we're so desperate for that attachment, but real interdependence isn't fearful, isn't afraid. It's about bringing you to the relationship and being held and being free. I got to attribute mm, that to yeah. Glennon Doyle because I didn't come up with yeah, that. Right. But that's part of that. You know, it's it's part of that. You can't really be part of an interdependent dynamic if you don't know yourself well enough to show up with your own truth. Amen. And what I think is so important about what you're saying in that example is what ends up happening so often is say you didn't talk to your partner in the way that you did with the space of curiosity and you just started like running with the narrative of like, this is what this means about how he feels about me. Um, what, where we lose one another in terms of like, I believe like our empathy for the other person is, I can't even see what's happening for him. I can't even see that he's overwhelmed or at capacity or scared or like frustrated with a family member. Like all of those things become irrelevant to me because I'm just so caught up in what this feels like for me. And then I'm not actually in relationship with that person. I'm just like in relationship with like demanding that my needs get met, you know? 
Right. And I think people have a lot of misconceptions around needs too, right? Like we have this notion of like, this is my everything and there's something else in me, every need that I have. And that is absolutely ridiculous, right? Like Mm -hmm. just because you have a need doesn't mean it has to be met by this exact person at this exact time. Like I, I think that for me, I really struggled with this in the beginning of my relationship with my current partner, CJ. Because he was very clear and explicit. I love you, but I cannot meet this need for you. And to me, that brought up a lot of fear. Like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean you don't love me? Does that mean I'm unlovable? Does that mean that my needs are ridiculous? Right. Um, But this is the beauty of building structures that meet all those types of needs and really taking a step back and doing something different. Right. I think coming out of my marriage, I at the start was like, I'm not going to be codependent. I'm going to be like the best version of myself. Right. But because I was polyamorous, I came out of my marriage with another relationship. And the Mm. easier thing would have been to slide into codependency and recreate a monogamous or monogamish type situation with my then boyfriend, who's still my partner. Um, And I feel like that felt very natural to me. Right. But in stepping back and saying, what am I creating here post-divorce? It looks a lot different than any type of relationship I've ever been in, because for the first time we said, "Okay, let's make sure we're taking this slow and intentional. Let's not do the things that people do when they're afraid or when they're hurt or, you know, when they're in pain. Can I I I think this is. I love where we're going with this, and I'm very aware that there are a lot of people listening who this is very new for, and I actually want to like back it up a little bit and just kind of talk about some really, I don't want to say basic, they're not basic concepts, but like let's set the stage for some people, right? So like this concept of relational anarchy, can we talk about what this is, why we see it kind of being talked about more and more, like, because I... I understand it to basically mean that we are taking every single potential arm of a relationship and we are deconstructing it. We're looking at it individually and we're saying, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. This is what I want it to look like. This is not what I want it to look like. And each partner, whether that's two, three, doesn't matter, gets to have that conversation about each individual arm of a relationship, right? And we kind of like write an agreement, right? We get to decide what our relationship looks like. Is that accurate or do you have anything kind of different? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things about relationship anarchy, it is not a structure, right? It's a mm-hmm. philosophy. So mm-hmm. it is it is the freedom and the ability to create relationships that are tailor-made for the people in them. So that is very few parameters, right? The only parameters around that are that you're working to deconstruct heteronormativity and mononormativity in your relationships. It's a really big task, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is that the structure that you agree to can look like anything you want it to look like. And I'm always very clear to say that you can be monogamous and be a relationship anarchist, or you mm-hmm. can be polyamorous and be a relationship anarchist, or anything in between. A lot of people will argue that a key concept in relationship anarchy is that there is no hierarchy. And I agree with that. But I also want to be clear that I don't believe that you have to show up to this perfectly deconstructed to consider yourself a relationship anarchist. I think that that would be... Um, 
the, I guess, equivalent of saying you have to be completely healed to engage in a relationship, right? right? I think if you are working toward, and that's why I feel like we call it a practice, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you are working toward deconstructing mononormativity, if you are examining your relationship to heteronormativity and working on breaking down structures and having good agreements, then I think you can consider yourself a relationship anarchist, right? If you're working on seeing all types of love on an equal plane, if you're doing something different that works for you. And just to give people an idea of what this can look like, I'll tell you a little bit about my relationship structure. Please. Um, I'm divorced, right? I have a boyfriend, CJ, and I have a queer platonic partner, Heidi. They live together in upstate. I live with my mom and my daughter. Um, And so we all kind of travel between the two homes to be together at all different times, but we consider ourselves to be very much a family structure. Um, And so CJ and Heidi don't engage together romantically. Um, CJ and I are romantically and sexually exclusive with one another. However, the three of us used to all be in romantic and sexual relationship in various forms at one time. I met Heidi because she was dating my ex-husband, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of nuance to the structure that we've created, um, but it really works for us, right? CJ and I are effectively closed as a relationship structure, but Heidi's dating, right? Um, And so we are very uh, individualized. And what works for us. And that's what relationship anarchy is about. It's about creating a sustainable model for relationships that works specifically for the people in them. I'm anticipating so all the anxiety of- that people are having while they, while they hear like, you talk I about think it. I'm like the least anxious I've ever Oh, no, I'm not saying me. I'm saying people listening. I like I'm anticipating. I, I just know. Like I know what this brings up for people, right? Like I'm, we're having these conversations. This is what we do. We're therapists. And so... I especially work, I have a lot of female individual clients and the anxiety is real. And it's all the reasons that we're talking about, right? It's the idea of kind of um, self-attachment, right? Like like really attuning to self and, and going through the work of, um, you know, this codependency recovery journey and all these things we're speaking to. I just, I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, I can just only imagine the DMs that we're <laughs> get about it. I love it. It tickles I me. I always, it's, it's funny because like, I usually see couples when they're at some kind of crisis point in their non-monogamy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I I, feel as though in the, the polyamorous community, we somewhat see relationship anarchy as like an end point. Like, oh, I did mm. all these other things and I ended up here. Um, mm. But recently, one of the things that I've been encouraging in couples, right, at the start, not in the middle, not at the crisis point, not at the, not at the end point, but right in the beginning is if you are interested in any form of non-monogamy, take a good hard look at relationship anarchy. Take a good hard look at how you're deconstructing mononormativity and heteronormativity before you've opened up your relationship to anyone else, because you can start that right where you are, right? And Mm -hmm. I, I feel like people get very intimidated by all of the work that goes into opening a relationship because it is scary. And I, I like to be really clear especially with couples, um, because I think they're very right to be anxious. I think they're very right to be scared because Mm -hmm. statistically, if you open up your previously monogamous relationship 
the likelihood that that relationship will end is very high. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you don't want to change the dynamic of your relationship, if you have a, a, a inclination to say, I want to add relationships, but I want to keep this the same, don't do it. Don't get involved mm. in non-monogamy because it mm. absolutely requires that you change your relationship. The good news is you don't have to engage in non-monogamy to deconstruct mononormativity and heteronormativity and start engaging with relationship anarchy principles, right? Yes. What does that look like for people? They're always like, they're like, what, how do I start that? Right? So in a very heteronormative way, are you a man who is not in charge of his own schedule? That would be very problematic if you're polyamorous, right? There mm -hmm. are some very real things like is attendance to all family things compulsory, right? Like, can you cook for yourself, right? Um, do you attend functions separately? Can you take separate vacations? Do you see your spouse's free time as your free time or is mm -hmm. their free time their free time? Oh, I'm just so obsessed with this because... First of all, I just really love any of the <laughs> compassionate way that you speak mm -hmm. to the level of activation that this mm -hmm. brings up in all of us, right? And I think there are certain things that Vanessa and I talk about, and it can be a little like, like <laughs> because we talk about it all day, every day, and it just doesn't feel as scary, yeah. maybe after a while, like you sort of like conditioned yourself to not feel that. And I think starting mm -hmm. in the space of curiosity and really questioning to me just feels so potent because. And this is a conversation Vanessa and I were having before you came on. You know, before I was a therapist, I worked in the realm of addiction recovery. And I was so struck, especially when I started working with couples, how much all of the things that come up in, um, you know, when we're like struggling with an addiction are just so similar to what I would see playing out with couples. And that like, the inability mm. to self-regulate and like, that if I can just control this person, then I can, oh, right? Like, and all of the like activation around the narratives, like you're speaking to, like of what this should be, that it isn't and how I get to sort of make it that. And if I can make it that, then I'll believe that I'm enough. Then I'll believe that I'm worthy. And it's this whole thing of like, mm. you know, Carl Jung said that alcoholism is sort of like this spiritual thirst for wholeness that we're like constantly chasing. But I was mm. watching like, we're doing that in our relationships. But Sometimes with some of my clients, I see a flavor of that in some of like the polyamorous relationships. And again, I think it's like, we're working it out. Like we're in process. It's all perfect, mm -hmm. but it's there. Like I see it. You know what I mean? And, and I don't think it's 100%. that different from like our heteronormative dynamics or I mean our, you know, yeah. And you know, yeah. thank you. When I was polyamorous, when I was deeply engaged with polyamory, I think that there were times when I actively used connection to avoid myself and my own hard mm -hmm. feelings, right? And this is so common for couples, right? And they do this by creating equivalence, right? Like you go on your date while I'm on my date. Like you, you have this overnight while I'm having this overnight, right? Yes. And it's a great salve for all of those tough feelings that, that we don't want to engage with because it's painful and it's lonely and it's hard. Um, but I think that we can use connection as its own kind of addiction. And, you know, there's a lot of joking in the polyamorous community, like, oh, it's not Pokemon. You don't have to catch them all. But <laughs> couples especially get very competitive with one another yes. about dating. And to me, like, 
polyamory, like being polyamorous, you're, you're not a verb, right? Like you don't have to be in constant action. You don't have to be on mm-hmm. what I call the hamster wheel of dating, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're allowed to pause and not be dating anyone at all, right? And I think that we have to be really careful about the way we try to fill ourselves with other people instead of mm-hmm. being recognizing ourselves as, as innately whole, right? Um, I think one of the things that I always tell couples, especially when they're like, we want to be polyamorous or we want to be non-monogamous. One of my questions is that's, that's a great goal, but do you know what one healthy relationship looks like? Right. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, so many of us don't, I thought Mm -hmm. that I did, but I mistook longevity for relationship health. And there's Mm -hmm. such a buy-in that happens, right? Like we're as married couples, we're surrounded by married couples who normalize all of the horrible things that we do to each other as married couples. And we start to normalize things that are so toxic. And then we take that into polyamory and we spread it like a disease. Mm. (laughs) Reach on it. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to go back a little bit because when you were, when we were talking about the concept of deconstructing, um, and you were saying that it's like, we, we do this thing where we compete with each other or like what you want has to be what I want. Right. Um, how would you, I suppose, and I'm, I'm pulling from my own personal experience here because in this work that I'm doing with my current partner, um, we don't agree on everything. Mm. Right. And that's, it's, it's tough, but it's not tough. Like, um, I have to force you to want what I want. We, it just feels a little bit like, and this might just be not knowing, not really knowing how to move forward in that. But like, what would you say to a couple who it's like, we still are on this journey, but there are things that we're not necessarily aligned with. Right. So like in this concept of monogamish, right. I'll just give an example. Mm -hmm. He definitely leans more towards like needing more intimate, emotional connection. And I am kind of the opposite. Like Mm -hmm. I want casual. I want, you know, excitement. I want, you know, spontaneity. And so there's, there's not an alignment there. And so then there, to me, it feels like there's a stopgap or an impasse rather, maybe it's the the better word, but I know there doesn't have to be. I just feel like for a lot of people, and I have a couple who I'm actually working through something similar with, they get stuck in that. Okay. We don't agree on this. And so now we have to just back off and not talk about it. We can't do any of it. And I know that's not true, but I guess I'm just confused. Like, what do we do now? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, pretty common, right? Because this is the thing is like, as a couple, you're like, we want to be doing this and moving together in a unified way. But there's generally a difference in style, right? And aligning on style. Um, when you, when you do align on style, that's wonderful, but a lot of people don't because why you're two individuals. So stop Mm -hmm. seeing your dating lives as a joint venture, right? Like you are two individuals engaging in relationships in the way that feels good for you. The way that you guys engage in your relationship together is unique to the dynamic that the two of you have created, of course. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're going to want to recreate that dynamic in other relationships. So. I think it's really hard, especially for people, especially if they're demisexual, right? Which means that you need an emotional connection before you have a sexual one, which is me. Um, You may stray more to wanting to engage in longer term, more romantic style relationships with somebody. That feels innately more threatening somehow to a person who is a little more to the mega sexual side, which is that I don't need an emotional connection to have sex. What? I think the the person in maybe your p- position, Vanessa, um, you know, the demisexuals like me 
look at the people like you and go, how are you doing that? I wish I, I could do that. <laughs> Danae That's looks so at me like that all the time. <laughs> Well, and I say that because it's like, for us, it's like, well, that's also threatening. I can't be in that space Mm. and that feels right. And I think that we forget, right. There's always that other side. So like your husband might feel just as envious that he can't engage casually as you might feel about the deep relationships. For me, I always felt like, oh my gosh, there's so much turnover because my partner can have these novel experiences that I can never Mm -hmm. catch my breath. If they could just pick one. Right. Then I could get to know that person and that's less threatening to me. But Mm. for him, it was because you have this other connection, it's threatening for me. Right. So I think respecting our individuality in both our sexual and emotional profiles is a very challenging thing to do. Um, but they're just two versions of the same thing. Um, Mm. and, and they're both hard for different reasons. And so I always recommend going slowly and with intention, right. And, and seeing how it feels, um, having care toward one another, but also don't be responsible for someone else's feelings, right? Like they have to work around your need and craving for novel experiences and you need to work around their need for emotional safety. And these are just two very different things. The work you have to do is very different. And again, be very honest. I always tell people, be super radically honest with yourself and then bring it really kindly to your partner. Um, this is too big for me to work through. I, I don't want to do it right now. Right. Yep. The, the thing is, I always think that you have to take opening and closing a relationship as like a permanent state. Right. So once mm. the bell is rung, you can't unring it. Right. Mm-hmm. So For you, that version of that might be once your partner is in a committed partnership to someone else, you can't call time on it. So before it gets to the dating part where those things are happening, really be radically honest. Is this something I'm down to do? And Mm -hmm. what's interesting and worth a mention, I think, is that people feel very um, stuck once they get into a non-monogamous space, they feel like, mm. oh no, I did this thing, right? Yeah. I believe deeply in these philosophies. I wanted to deconstruct this, but this just maybe isn't for me. But then they feel mm. like it's too late, like they can't go right. back. Um, and this is central to the work that I'm doing right now because I want people to know that it's okay. Like having choice is the radical part. It doesn't say what you have to choose. You are allowed to try things and say, I tried that. It wasn't for me because right now in my life, it's just too difficult. Or this was traumatizing for me. I didn't like it. Or I loved this style of relationship with this person, but with this other person, for whatever reason, I'm finding I don't want that anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that we have to see all relationship styles and choices as valid because yes. we will choose different things at different times. Thank you for saying that. You're, you have a you have a knack for destigmatizing and taking the shame out of what I think a lot of people find a lot of shame in, right? Which is, I like different things than you like. I believe different things than you believe. I want my life and my relationship to look differently than you do. And so somehow that makes me wrong or bad or shameful, right? And I think what you're saying speaks to I mean, every concept in mental health, right, which is all about taking the shame and understanding every unique person's individuality. But I just wanted to 
say thank you for that. Because even in that moment, hearing you say that, even to me personally, I'm like, oh, I can feel myself yeah. immediately let go of a lot of the shame that even I've carried around. Again, even hearing you say megasexual, I've never even heard that term. I just know <laughs> that I have, I feel like almost my entire life, I've had to convince a lot of people in my life who would be considered demisexual that there's nothing wrong with me, that the way I feel yeah. is fine. You know, yeah. I just appreciate that. I yeah. I think that we skip this a lot in sex positivity and it's, it's super yes. important to me, right? Being sex positive is as much about the right to have whatever kind of sex you want to have or have none at all, right? Yes. Like we stigmatize people on both ends of the spectrum. My asexual people get stigmatized because they don't want sex and my megasexual people get stigmatized because they want so much of it. This mm -hmm. is a spectrum, right? Just in the same way relationships are a spectrum, right? We're going to engage in the ways that feel good for us and we need the freedom to feel okay about who we are, right? That's why kind of everything that underlies my work is you deserve to be yourself because what mm -hmm. we do when we're in shame is harmful, not only to ourselves, but to the people we love. Yeah. Mm. I love so much the way that it is, first of all, deconstructing this myth of that there is a normal, but that also that, you know, even as you talk about like, that we can change our minds and that mm -hmm. this can be alive and shifting, it's really about finding alignment without like the internalizing of this having something to do about my self-worth because I mm. think so much of what ultimately is bringing the activation that Vanessa is talking about is that like I'm believing that there's a normal that I need yes. to be in order to be okay right and somebody else outside of me defines that and I love this thing of like the thing of you deserve to be yourself is like you get to define all of these things for yourself and you get to not make yourself wrong for it. Even if all of a sudden your partner's like, well, we've opened this up and I want to like stay open now. It's like, well, then maybe we're not aligned and it's a no fault zone. And that doesn't make you a bad person or me. It just means we're no longer in alignment with our desires. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think too, like people make the stakes really, really high on this. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for me, that was like, a huge takeaway from my divorce was like, I didn't feel like it had to be that way, right? Like I didn't feel like the stakes needed to be that high. And I remember at the very beginning saying to him, if at the end of this, we were to break up, I think I love you enough to walk away, right? Like mm. I was very clear that the risks were worth it for me, right? The problem is, and we talk about this in in de-escalation a lot, which is very popular in the non-monogamous community, is de-escalating versus breaking up, trying to end things amicably, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we have this notion of like relationships ending being a failure on the totally. part of the couple, especially if they're married, especially if we have kids, like all of those things. Um, and I think that it makes non-monogamous couples in these positions feel like not only are they struggling, having a hard time, but they have to pretend like they're doing a great job. They have to pretend like they're perfect because they are ambassadors for the entire community. And that is simply too much pressure. Um, generally speaking, when you break up as a, a polyamorous couple, the non-monogamy will be the source of blame. Um, and I like to use the analogy of like, 
being polyamorous is the dropping acid version of doing relationships. You are going to see everything that was hidden. It is going to come to the forefront. You might wake up with no pants on, right? Like all the things. It's never the polyamory. The polyamory is an accelerant. It is going to shed light in every crack of your relationship. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, you might have broken up five years sooner than you would have if you were monogamous, but the outcome was probably always going to be the same. Um, Carl Rogers says something really Mm -hmm. interesting about non-monogamy. Do you guys know this one? Mm-mm. I mean, we know Rogers, um, but not non-monogamy. Well, <laughs> I love I love the humanistic view of psychology, but he talked about how some couples, when they were stagnant in their monogamous relationships, would open their relationships and have what he dubbed satellite or secondary partners. And he mm. classified this as very risky to the couple, but wonderful for self-growth. And I think that that is a very interesting take. Um, and I remember, tr- I remember reading this and turning to my partner and being like, Oh my God, I just got personally attacked by Carl Rogers. <laughs> um, but I think it's really true. Like this is a non-monogamy is a growth space. And I think yes. that we have to really see it that way. Um, it's not that it's not, you know, it, it's not that people are going to be entering and, and exiting it or that they're doing it because they're stagnated. But I think that it is a very real and true thing that especially for couples, they are about to explode in growth in ways they haven't in their long-term relationship. And that may have a very different outcome than they anticipated. It's funny you say that. I was laughing with a friend of mine because we were having this whole conversation, relationship anarchy, opening relationships, all these things. And I was saying something about how maybe it's just like my sick, twisted, psychology obsessed self where I was like, ooh, I'm enraged. This is fascinating. Like, ooh, this is so interesting. I'm like so angry. I could flip a table. I'm like, ooh, I love this. And he's like, you're insane. I'm like, am I? Or am I just obsessed with like self-growth and like examination, right? It doesn't feel comfortable. I don't love being in the space of complete and total dysregulation. But there is a part of me that's able, and I don't know what this is, to kind of see outside myself and see that dysregulation, obviously once I've come down slightly, and be like, ooh, this is so interesting. I'm curious about this. What is that? What is this telling me? You know, what new layer of the onion has just been peeled back? And I do think even in the work that I do with couples who are monogamous, so much of that work is like, can we look at this stuff as as another way, another entry point into being curious about the self rather than being like, oh my God, we've touched a hot button, back off, immediately stop doing whatever that thing is. This is bad. Is it bad? Or is it actually just opening you up to more, you know, inquiry? I don't know. Yeah. And I think that we become like afraid of each other when we're, when we're comfortable in relationships. Like we don't want to upset the other person. You know, I recently had a conversation with my partner. He was like, we don't talk about other women anymore. And I was like, Mm. yeah, you're right. There's some reasons for that. I was like, do you want to talk about what the reasons are? And he was like, I don't, I just don't want to piss you off. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's really valid. Mm. And then like, I was like, I think the reason I'm not talking about it right now is because it brings up so much jealousy for me. And I'm really Mm. struggling with that. And then, you know, in therapy, as I was talking about this, my therapist was saying, you know, um, where are you feeling vulnerable? And I was like, oh, great. Thanks. Like I'm going to cry for the next hour (laughs) now. Right. But it shifted the conversation to, I'm not, am I actually jealous or am I just 
feeling vulnerable and being able to show up and say to my partner, it makes me feel so deeply vulnerable to talk about mm. this with you um, because we know the risks very differently now. Right. And so we're careful with each other. Um, but careful doesn't mean sidestepping hard either. So, it, you know, those conversations, they can be difficult, but we also have to find really good ways to have them with one another. Um, again, in ways that lower the stakes so that we don't feel like we're always putting our relationship on the line because constant state of dysregulation is not going to be good either. Yes. yes. 100% of those episodes where I'm like writing down so much of what you're saying, Amy. And I think <laughs> there's, I mean, I love this thing of like, what is risky for the couple, um, you know, being very different than what is in alignment with our own evolution. I think I, I felt emotional. I'm, I'm feeling some of what Vanessa was saying in terms of appreciation for you, because I think there's something so potent about like the normalization of, I feel very strongly the most loving thing my ex-husband and I have ever done was allow our relationship to change form. And I think there's such a, a thing of like, loving means like we hold on to this and keep it in the container and in the iteration that it's been forever. And that's how you love. Um, but it's that thing of like, this is risky because it's unknown, but it could conceivably mm. be better. Right. Or, mm. um, even the way you're talking about like going there with some of these conversations, like we're so afraid to say the thing, but I think that that is where the the life force and the, the juice is. If we can like stay with each other through it, that's intimacy. Right. Um, and yeah. really, I don't know what the point of relationships is if we're going to like yeah. be in this container, never allowing ourselves. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, what are we here for if not to activate one another and like talk about it? Like that's, that's where the growth is. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we talk about like relationship success and, and I think we do have to also see like that these two things exist, right? Like you brought up Carl Jung earlier and like, he's one of my very favorites, by the way. Um, and I think one of my favorite concepts that Carl Jung talks about is the paradox and how holding two opposite and opposing truths in both hands, right? One in each hand and bringing those together is kind of the sweet spot in life. And I think that one of those paradoxical truths is that we are simultaneously a part of a couple and just ourselves, right? And mm -hmm. how do we paradoxically bring these two things together to live in that sort of paradox, that sweet spot, you know, where am I in relation to this couple? Um, and just given the amount of choice that we have now, um, because of the global world that we live in, because of the amount of people we come into contact with, because of how long we live, um, and how much general information we have about who we are and how we actualize in today's world. I think it's safe to assume that if you're not open and growing in a relationship, or even if you are, that that relationship could plausibly come to an end. Um, and to kind of destigmatize some of the shame around that, I think is also, is also beneficial for people. Um, but I think there's a huge counter narrative um, that's very mononormative and, and very pervasive in society. It's so pervasive that we don't even register most of it. Um, and I think that that really has a way of settling in on, you know, 
I mean, I did the whole thing, right? Without even thinking about it. I need to get married. I need to have a secure home. I need to purchase a house. I need to have a baby, right? And then I did all of those things and went, oh God, what now? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are subverting that now. And my hat's off to them. I mean, I look at Gen Z and I'm like, Y'all are doing it so right. Like Mm -hmm. they're not buying in in the way that people over 30, like I'm 38, I was conditioned to buy into Mm -hmm. that. Um, And I think that's really great. I think that one of the groundbreaking ways that Gen Z is engaging in relationships is meeting someone that they're into and then saying, "Uh, what kind of style works for us as a couple? And then proceeding Mm -hmm. that way. That's, That's my wish for every couple at the start, right? Is to, is for two people to come together and say, okay, here's all our choices. What do we choose? Mm. You know, I'm so obsessed with, about the way I hear you speak to things. And I feel like I was in a rabbit hole of your content, (laughs) but you know, even, and this is something Vanessa and I've talked about, like, there's just a lot in terms of like authentic fulfillment that we're just not being honest about. Even like, there's a lot of problems that can be solved by us just being open to multiple ways that this can be done. Um, Like, I love that you speak about being in a multi-generational family and like the support that that can offer. I feel like once I separated from my husband, I was like, this is like the secret. Nobody wants women to know. Like having some time for yourself is everything. Like, I feel yes. like there are all of these yes. ways that we can structure our lives and our relationships that we don't have to hate life. We don't have to feel like I'm drowning every day, but that's mm-hmm. sort of the, the lie we've been sold. Like life is something you get through. It's horrible. It's awful. And it really doesn't have to be, but we have to be open to like creating it for ourselves. Well, and I, I think that we're not honest, right? The nuclear family does not benefit women. It is in service of the patriarchy and people don't like to hear that. I internally, when I see people on Reddit or chat boards or things saying like, how do I get my husband to do half the work? Honey, leave. (laughs) (laughs) He will have no choice because he will have that child half the time. Amen. I mean, the truth is that until I left, I was doing 85% of everything. And I didn't realize how exhausted I truly was until I had a break. Um, And I think it's also like, it's a very different, I think that I've always had a very strong ideal of what masculine looks like for me. Um, And my partner now embodies that for me. That is softness. It is vulnerability. It is strength through curiosity, right? It is showing up consistently with care and love and it is good boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I always, I talk about this and, and my partner and I talk about this because Um, There is an age gap in our relationship, which can be somewhat controversial, um, but I don't shy away from controversy too often. Um, But we always talk about how there's this missed high five for for men and women. Um, And part of what I think that is, is, you know, men in their 20s show up vulnerable. They show up vulnerable and they show up ready to love. And women in their 20s show up ready to kick the shit out of these men. Right. (laughs) Because their ideal, I feel personally attacked. 
I mean, I did this. I did this, Same. right? Because our version of masculinity in our 20s, the conditional thing that we've been taught is they are strong, right? They're strong. They're, they're impenetrable. They're providers. They're all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And then we get to our 30s and we go, what about this guy? Like, yeah. all I want to do is have a vulnerable conversation. I want you to be soft with me, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. so it's not until we get to that, that mid to late thirties that we realize we've missed the high five, right? Our libidos are through the roof. We want to have great conversations with vulnerable men. Well, who are they? Oh, they're back in their twenties because, because we beat the vulnerability out of the men in their thirties and forties, mm. right? <laughs> and this is not in any way to give men a pass on doing their own work. Mm-hmm. But I know from my own experience that this is something I've really struggled with. And when I started dating men in their 20s, I was like, what's up with these touchy-feely men uh, who are really showing up? Like, And they're not jaded and they're romantic. And what is going on there? And it wasn't until I really started thinking about that. You know, so I guess this is also to say, um, if you meet a man in his 30s or 40s who is vulnerable, that is a man who has deconstructed and done a lot of work and not allowed the world to change him, right? And so I think that it's also important to think about how we are responsible for our own cultural work, especially, mm-hmm. you know, in America where hyper individualization and masculine and feminine ideals are very much put forward still um as as how we should show up right like i was obsessed with this notion of being the perfect wife and mother and you know i cooked home cooked meals every night i volunteered with the school i did it all you know um really trying to be this ideal as soon as I left my marriage, I was like, I am just a super queer non-binary person. (laughs) I just need to embrace, you know, but it didn't feel safe in that kind of heteronormative kind of expectation Mm -hmm. to feel masculine, to say, these are the sides of me that I need to express. Right. Um, and so I think we have to be really careful and that's that, that heteronormative part of, you know, how we show up in our relationships. Mm. Can we just keep you? I don't want to stop <laughs> talking to you at all. I'm like, yeah, I'm so good. Um, all right. Well, we have our lightning round of questions that um, Ooh, yeah. we asked all our guests, but you might have to come back. Yeah, you definitely did. I'm, I'm just getting started with you. <laughs> I know we covered a all lot right. of ground today. Oh my gosh, so good. Um, so. Who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, people who have impacted your path, whether they're people you know or just you've really been impacted by their work? Well, first of all, I feel like everybody should read Bell Hooks because Mm -hmm. she has amazing things to say on love. And of course, Brene Brown, which is the first place that I read about shame. And I think that is foundational for all people to deconstruct shame. Um, But I would say also... The three people that, oh my God, y'all going to make me cry. My mom, because she just gave me such a good example of what a strong woman is. 
um, and my partners, uh, CJ and Heidi. I think that if it hadn't been for polyamory, if it hadn't been for them, I would have continued thinking that I was the problem. And they showed me real and true healthy love. And then, of course, I have to give a shout out to my daughter because she is the mirror that reflects back to me all the love and all the things that are good and true about, you know, that specific mother experience. Mm. I know. (laughs) know. (laughs) Um, Okay. So this concept of flow, right? Like what is Mm. that for you? The thing that you're doing when you could blink your eyes, you know, and six hours goes by when you're just so in alignment with kind of your authentic self. Well, I guess for me, flow, I have to, I have to put that through like a, a bit of a neurodivergent lens for myself because, um, for me, like flow is special interest, right? It's that thing that mm-hmm. just makes you come alive, um, and kind of allows you to just engage for me in that type of autistic joy. Um, and for me, that's sex and relationships, right? Psychology, interest, like human experience. Um, and I, and I always know when it happens because it is that place without time, you know, where time is just canceled and you're in, in a state that you could just keep going and going forever. And that's, and that's just joy. By the way, thank you. You give you give me so many nuggets this conversation where you're like, actually, we should put even the concept of flow through the lens of neurodivergence because I don't think I ever thought about it in that way. And yet, as somebody who also has pretty massive ADHD, and I realize that my flow is basically information dumping, <laughs> and yeah. not everybody experiences that on the receiving end. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's let me my flow. It is. Yeah. I mean, we always say in my constellation, it's like, hey, are you open to an info dump? Like, yeah, go. (laughs) I need to just start asking. (laughs) And what breaks your heart, Annie? I, I think the thing that breaks my heart the most is when people do not feel that the world is a safe place to be themselves. Um the tagline, you deserve to be yourself comes from a Reiki session that I had um, in my early 30s. I was having trouble letting go of my high school boyfriend. And the tragedy of of this person was that they just could never be themselves. And so in this Reiki session, when I let him go, I kissed him on the cheek. I handed him the bag of the things that were not mine to carry. And I said, you deserve to be yourself. And I walked away. Mm. Beautiful. And the last question, what is your favorite food? This is going to sound so bougie. (laughs) Bring on the bougie. It's lobster. (laughs) I'm like a caricature of myself right now. I mean, I just, I love it. Just give me that crustacean all day. I love it. Or miso soup, oh, no. maybe together, maybe a lobster miso. I don't think we've actually had lobster as an answer before, so that's no. a unique one. Yeah, we love an original answer on the favorite food, Annie. Well, Annie, I, can't help it. I gotta say, um, not only are you unbelievably brilliant, but I think you're a visionary and a way shower and someone who is going to usher humanity um, into who I believe we are becoming. I am so grateful that we found you, and I'm just grateful to be able to amplify your wisdom a little bit to the extent that we can, because I think what you were doing is so important and permission giving and just like releases so much of the shame around like us and our human and how we get to show up and be ourselves. So thank you. It's such an honor. Thank you. you. Thank you. That's such high praise. 
Yeah. Truly. So glad to be here. This was such a great discussion today. Yeah, it was. Shout out to our girl, Tawny, for bringing it to us because I'm know, so grateful. Tawny, thank you for Annie. <laughs> <laughs> and mean, we'll definitely have you, you on for a part two. No question. Yeah, anytime, <laughs> anytime. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.